And if you'd uh, take out your Bible to Acts chapter 17, we'll be, uh, we'll be reading from there and then uh, turning to the explanation of God's Word. Awesome, thank you. Acts chapter 17 picks up after uh, the place that, that we were last week where um, Paul and Silas, Paul uh, cured a woman, a young girl who was demon-possessed, and after curing her, uh, that brought the, uh, the rage of the authorities on them, and they were beaten and thrown into prison. Uh, and when the prison was shaken, after Paul and uh, Silas were, were singing and, and praising God there, the, uh, the jailer who, who, who kept them uh, then repented and put his faith in Christ. Uh, the next day, the magistrates came and tried to get rid of Paul and Silas and said, go on, you know, uh, uh, leave town, we'll, we'll, we'll see you later. And uh, Paul then dressed them down for uh, wrongly beating them and, um, and, and, and then trying to, to get away with it. Uh, and so it's, it's, it's on that foundation that we move, Paul moves into a new city. Uh, he, he travels into a different place, and that's where we pick up in Acts chapter 17, verse 1. The scriptures say, Now when they had passed through Amphipolis, Amphipolis, let's say, uh, Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days, that's three different Saturdays, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city of authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people in the city's, city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we thank you uh, for this opportunity, though it is uh, pouring down rain outside at this moment. We are one, uh, dry, but two, blessed with the opportunity to hear your word. Uh, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it comes into our lives. And Lord, it connects with us where we are. It is relevant at all times. Lord, it communicates with us where we are. It encourages us, Lord, and it shows us what is what is good. It shows us the ways in which we are properly following you and the ways in which we are, we are living in a way that's pleasing to you, Lord. It also 
cuts, and we don't like that. It, it tells us where we're wrong. It, 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 it pierces, the Bible says in, in Hebrews chapter 4, between the, the joint and the marrow. It cuts into the innermost part of our soul and says, this is not right. And we don't like that at all. But Lord, it's good. It's good to be corrected by your word. It's good to hear your thoughts, Lord. Not one of us measures up to the standard that you've set for us. But we thank you for being gracious enough to point it out to us and then to point us to the solution to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gives us his righteousness, that all of our sins, all of our our shame, all of our guilt would be canceled out and that we can know that we are righteous and at peace with you by your grace. Lord, we pray that as we are challenged this morning by your word, I pray that, Lord, as we, we see our culture and we see our people, we see uh, our, 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 our society, the way that that. that that we have known the way that we've grown up, the way that we've lived, we see it head one direction. I pray that we would not be swept up, cast around uh, like a boat on the waves, but that we, Father, would remain firmly anchored in the truth and that we would trust you, Jesus, as Lord and King of our lives. We thank you for this opportunity to dig into your word, and we pray that you would feed us now. In Jesus' precious name, amen. I, uh, I first became aware that the world was a much different place than I thought it was, uh, probably in high school, but mostly in college. I remember... Um, walking through a building on campus called Old Main. This is in Kutztown, Pennsylvania. Um, halfway between Allentown and Easton, somebody saw that there was a great big patch of nothing, and so they decided to put a college there. Um, and the town existed around the college. Uh, we, would, we would walk through this building called Old Main. It was a shortcut to get to, um, to, the, uh, to, to, to the places where classes were. And uh, one day I was walking through there and I saw this sign hanging over this, this, um, this section and, and it said it was the women's center. And uh, it was like, oh, cool, that's interesting. What's that all about? But I noticed that the way that they spelled women was W-O-M-Y-N. Um, and, you know, part of me, this is before uh, Microsoft Word was like everywhere and you had that little red squiggle that indicates that that word is spelled wrong. And as I'm walking by it, I'm like, something's not right with that. What's up with that? Why is that spelled wrong? And I, um, so I asked one of my friends and I said, what's up with the Women's Center? And they said, oh, they spell women, W-O-M-Y-N, because um, that way the word men is not in it. And I thought, you are not in Kansas anymore. Um, something is quite different about this place. Uh, I realized at college that it was very difficult to live uh, with a Christian worldview in a culture 
that makes no pretension to morally honoring God and Christ. It's, it's difficult to live in a culture that has no intention of morally honoring God or Christ. Uh, I think that, that we, we face cultural upheaval. Uh, many of you saw this this week uh, when the Supreme Court handed out down its decision on the Defense of, of Marriage Act and uh, Proposition 8, uh, clearing the way, it, it seems, for gay marriage in all states. Um, I think there's a degree of panic that strikes us as believers as we watch the news and we say, how, 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 can I, how, how can I live and honor Christ in this culture when the culture is heading the exact opposite direction? I, I was born in 1974, and so I don't remember an America before legalized abortion. But I'm assuming that many of you uh, who are older than me, uh, when that decision was handed down, I, I believe that many Christians probably said, how, how are we... How can we live in this culture and honor Christ when the culture will not honor him? I think in, in just a year or two, the, um, the, the way will be open. I believe it's something like 5,000 licenses have been submitted uh, for for companies to launch these little vehicles that fly around the sky and gather information on people and on uh, uh, they, they fly around and take pictures. Drones will be flying everywhere in just a year or two. Um, how do we live in a, in a culture where everyone can spy on you constantly all the time? Uh, these, are, these are concerning questions. The world keeps changing it doesn't seem for the better. How, how do we live when our culture continues to move on further along from a place where it can honor Christ? It's interesting that um, C.S. Lewis wrote an article in 1948. This is three years after uh, the first atomic bombs were dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Um, and he, he wrote an essay called How to Live in an Atomic Age. This is what he says. This is how he opens it. This is how he begins his, his, his article. He says this, In one way, we think a great deal too much of, of the atomic bomb. How are we to live in an atomic age? I'm tempted to reply, why, as you would have lived in the 16th century when the plague visited London almost every year, or as you would have lived in a Viking age when raiders from Scandinavia might land and cut your throat any night, or indeed, as you already are living in an age of cancer or disease, an age of paralysis, an age of air raids, an age of railway accidents, an age of motor accidents. In other words, he says, do not let us begin by exaggerating the novelty of our situation. Believe me, dear sir or madam, you and all whom you love were already sentenced to death before the atomic bomb was invented. And quite a high percentage of us were going to die in unpleasant ways. We had, indeed, one very great advantage over our ancestors. 
that's anesthetics, but we have that still. It is perfectly ridiculous to go about whimpering and drawing long faces because the scientists have added one more chance of painful and premature death to a world which already bristled with such chances and in which death itself was not a chance at all, but a certainty. He goes on to say, this is the first point to be made and the first action to be taken is to pull ourselves together. If we are all going to be destroyed by an atomic bomb, let that bomb, when it comes, find us doing sensible and human things. Praying, working, teaching, reading, listening to music, bathing the children, bathing the children, (laughs) playing tennis, chatting to our friends over a pint and a game of darts, not huddled together like frightened sheep and thinking about bombs. They might break our bodies. A microbe can do that, but they need not dominate our minds. As we arrive in Acts chapter 17, I've put myself, I'm thinking what Paul must have been thinking as he travels into Thessalonica. He, he is heading into this situation. He has just done gospel ministry in Philippi, and he has healed this slave girl who's possessed with a demon, and as he heals her, he is then taken and beaten. He is thrown into prison. Um, the, the prison falls down. Uh, he, is, he has an opportunity to, to minister, but he has been beaten within an inch of his life. He has been abused, and the government has then tried to shuffle him off the scene. He is ministering in a culture that makes no pretension of honoring God or Christ. And then he moves into a new setting. And what does he do in that setting when he goes into it? He lives like Christ is his king when the world lives like it has no king. As I think about our changing culture... I I connect what C.S. Lewis has to say up with the way that Paul lives. And let me just, let me give you, maybe this is me being a cynic. Maybe this is the age I've grown up in. Maybe I'm too postmodern. Maybe I'm not thinking about these things correctly. But I think that as our culture changes and as things go wrong and as new technologies are developed and, and as new means of defying the will of God are introduced into our culture, I believe that the response of believers is to look at a world that lives like it has no king and to live like Christ is ours. That ought to be our response. Not to panic and fall apart and say, how will we move on? How can we possibly live? But to say, has anything really changed? Is anything really that different Or is this just one new manifestation of what we already know? That we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. What are we doing when we read the newspapers and we see new acts of violence or or new acts of, of immorality? We're just seeing new evidence of that truth made plain over and over. And our resolve ought not to be to panic, but to say, The world continues to live like it has no king. We will live like Christ 
is ours. Let's look at Paul's ministry. He ministers despite past opposition. I think that if what happened to Paul in Philippi had happened to me, if I had been beaten with rods for for proclaiming the gospel and doing good things, I think I might change my strategy a little bit. My strategy would be like, do things that will keep me from getting beaten, right? That would be my my personal approach would be like, I'm going to stop short of making everybody enraged and angry where they'll beat me within an inch of my life. That's that's what I'm going to do. That's going to be my plan and, and, and my goal. But that's not what Paul does. It says, as was his custom, he went into the synagogue. That's verse 2. And on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures. He goes back to doing the exact same thing that he's been doing all this time. He's just going and sharing Christ again. He ministers in the same way according to the pattern that he believes that God has revealed to him despite opposition. reasoning from the scriptures. I think that many times the world gets an opportunity to peer into what Christianity is by by talking to us at the water cooler or reading our Facebook statuses or, or, or looking at the things that we're blogging or emailing out or the things that we're talking about over family dinner. And, and what they see is people who are, 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 are sad and upset that the old days are coming to an end. What they see is people who are upset that our culture is not the same as it was 50 years ago or 60 years ago. No matter what kinds of progress or advances have taken place, Reasoning from the scriptures is the answer to that in my mind. As Paul ministers, he does not go into this culture and begin to say to them, here are all the things that you're doing wrong, okay? I've been through your city and I've noticed your culture and I've come up with a list of 28 sins that your culture is committing. Now let's go through them one by one and talk about how they are undermining um, and, and leading your society to its end. Okay, let's, let's start with idolatry. Let's start right there. Okay, here's number one. You've got all these temples, blah, 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 you know, and then he, he goes about that. That's not what he does. What he does is he attacks them head on, and he tells the world what's going on. He reasons from the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. Verse 3, he says, this Jesus who I proclaim to you is the expected Messiah. From the scriptures, he's pointing out what God is doing in the world in Jesus. Here's a sample passage of what he might have explained (laughs) to them. They knew this, but he is pointing it out to them again. Isaiah 53, verse 4, speaking of Jesus, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed over and over, pointing out to them that because of their sins, because of our sins, that God sent Christ to take our punishment. All we, 
he goes on perhaps to say, like sheep have gone astray, we've turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He reasons from the scriptures that Jesus is the Messiah. He would probably approach this logically, right? Here, here, this is logic. In logic, you've got two propositions and a conclusion. So maybe this is what, what he would do. He would say, look, the scriptures indicate that the Messiah would need to come and die. You see that right there in Isaiah 53. That's point number one. He would need to come and to die, and then he would rise from the dead. Point number one. Point number two is that Jesus came and died and rose from the dead. Therefore, Jesus is the Messiah. That's reasoning from the scriptures, connecting up the events in the life of Jesus Christ and the, the events predicted in the scriptures and saying Jesus is the Messiah. That's, that's one part of reasoning from the scriptures. Second, though, he would probably have dealt carefully with their questions and their doubts, dealing with the facts and then carefully reasoning through them and, and pleading, pointing out to them that Jesus is the promised Christ who is supposed to come. Uh, he, he proclaims Jesus. Uh, another translation of that word could be explaining. He's telling the story, laying out the grand narrative of the Bible that God sent Christ as a solution for all humanity's sin. And when he rose from the dead and ascended to, to be with his father, that he gave the church the mission of proclaiming forgiveness to all nations and that one day he would return. When you tell people that Jesus is the Messiah, that he's the king of the world, people are like, really? He's the king of the world? Why? Why is the world such a mess? Right? Good question. Turn over to Psalm 110, verse 1, where it says, God says, sit at my feet until I make all your enemies your footstool. That's what Jesus is doing right now, waiting until the Father submits all things to his feet, dealing with objections. In, in reading a book um, that was, that was uh, released just last year by a, a Christian um, professor, uh, she, was, she was not a Christian, she was an atheist, but she became a Christian. Uh, reading her book, she said the number one thing that turned her off about Christians was that they used the Bible not as their database for discussion, but as a means of silencing discussion. Where when, when somebody would say, hey, what about this? They would then say, the Bible says, and they just put up a wall, and there would be no room for discussion or debate. What it says here that Paul does is that he reasons with them from the scriptures. He says, this is what the Bible says, and then they say, no, it doesn't. And he says, well, the reason what you're saying is not true because, and he, he gets into the mix with them. He allows them to express their, their doubts and to, and to share the, the facts that they're struggling with so that they can get to the point where they would say, I agree with you about what you're saying. The point is to demonstrate that Christ takes the place of the sinning individual so that the sinner need not be separated from God and perish. And it shows the gracious and righteous character of, of God in saving people who are separated from him by their sins. They, this crowd, is convinced that, that the proper use of the scriptures, the proper use of the Old Testament law is to be good people. 
I believe that is much of what our culture believes about religion and Christianity specifically. They think that what we want is for everybody to fall in line with our way of thinking so that society will be good. But that's not what Christianity is about, brothers and sisters. My Greek professor, Dr. Larkin, says this in his commentary in the book of Acts. He says, the gospel is, after all, good news about what God has done in Christ, not the distillation of the best of human religious reflection. Christianity is not be good and God will love you. Christianity is we have messed up incredibly. And God will save us if we repent and put our faith and trust in him. But beyond just reasoning, there's an urgency to what Paul is proclaiming. He's saying, this Jesus who I proclaim to you is the Christ. And as he presses home these claims, he's pointing out the fact that that this knowledge is not just something that we need to know, but something that ought to affect the way that we live our lives, right? You can know that that someone has taken the lid uh, off of your bottle of Coca-Cola, because why would you be drinking Pepsi? And and they take the lid off of your Coca-Cola, and they fill that bottle instead with cyanide. And you can know that that will kill you. But if you do not adjust your behavior and your actions based on that knowledge, it does you no good. But it says Coke right there on the bottle. Knowing that, that, that Christ will return and will judge ought to change our lives. It ought to change our behavior. Knowing that, that God, when, when he washes us clean, when he transforms our lives, knowing that he has been good to us far beyond what we deserve, ought to change the way that we behave. We live in a particular way as believers, not because we want to earn God's affection, but because of it. This Jesus, who I proclaim to you, is the Christ, Paul reasoned with them. And that required that they make a decision about the way that they lived. It's not just about knowing God. It's about responding to what he has done. Blaise Pascal says that knowledge of God is very far from the love of him. Paul would point out in 1 Thessalonians when he wrote to these people later on that that they demonstrated the knowledge of the need for repentance. 1 Thessalonians 1.9, the faith of the Thessalonians had begun to spread throughout the whole region. It says, for they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you. We, we came to Thessalonica, we shared the gospel, and the word has spread, and people are like, it's amazing what's happening there. How you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. As we press home the claims of Christ to people in our workplace, in our family, with random people that we meet among our friends, we need to make sure that what we're pushing is not just 
this is right and this is wrong, but that God is a great king and that he has done a great work for us and that one day he is coming and the implications of the way that we have chosen to live in response to what he's done for us will be driven home on that day. We ought to conduct ourselves, therefore, as we live in a changing world in a way that reflects that. Our world, our culture, is going to live like there is no king. Human cultures always do. They start off well, or they start off bad, and they get worse. That's just the way that society tends to go. Why? That's not just pessimism. I would never make a good member of the Optimists Club, but it is, it's not just pessimism, it's rooted into human nature that things tend to degrade. God calls us in response to the gospel to live like Paul here, communicating to the culture that though it does not live like it has a king, that we have a king. And that doesn't make us superior to them, but it causes us to live with urgency and to share that gospel message with them that they too might be saved. Listen to what Peter says in 1 Peter 3, 13. He says, Who is there to harm you if you are zealous for good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Paul, believing that, ministers in this culture in Thessalonica. And when the people freak out about what he's doing and the way he's teaching, and they, uh, they, they begin to attack the, the ones who are believing in Christ and, and, and dragging uh, them before the authorities again, he lives like Christ is king anyway, even though his flesh is threatened. Today, as we live in a culture and we seek to honor Christ, it is possible people will say that we are intolerant. It is possible that people will say that we are judgmental. It is possible that, that people will say that we don't understand. But if we trust and sanctify Christ as our king in our hearts, then we will say, it doesn't matter what the culture says about me. We're going to live like Christ is king. Even if you suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense for anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that's in you. Yet, here's, I think this is, this is the key in my mind for what I'm, what I'm getting at when I talk about living as Christ is king. We ought to always be ready to say, no, 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 we live this way because God is king no matter what the law says. Or, or we live this way and we, we uphold this moral code and we live this way because that's what it means to love Christ. Jesus says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. We always ought to be able, we always ought to be prepared to defend the hope that's in us. But Paul says, yet, or sorry, Peter 1 Corinthians 3.15, he says, Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile, those who hate you because of your moral stand, 
Those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. It's better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Let me just challenge you. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? That it is, it is better to live in our culture and perhaps to be thought of as intolerant for saying, I believe that this is what marriage is. That's the way God created humanity. And that's what I believe. And be, and be called intolerant. Do, do, you, do you believe that it, 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 it's better to, to live under the lordship of Christ than for someone to say, you are judgmental and I don't like you because you say, you know what? You shouldn't run your wife down or leave her. You ought to honor her because that's the will of God. Do you believe it's better for someone to say, I, I, don't, I, I don't really like you. You're irritating when you say, you ought to forgive that person and show them grace because you've sinned against God in greater measure. And so you ought to repent of this sin that you are committing against this person and forgive them what they have sinned against you. Do you believe that's better? To, to live as though Christ is king when no institution in our society is going to enforce them to live that way. Does that make sense? We, when we see our culture living like Christ is not king, ought to live as if he is king anyway. And yet we ought to do it with gentleness and respect. The people's reaction to Paul's teaching is simple, two-sided. Two some believe and some reject. They, those who reject, go to the leaders, of, of the, the, the local authorities, and they say these men with their teaching have turned the world upside down. They've disrupted the social order. They are messing with things. They will not go with the flow. They, they are defying the will of the people or the state. And they ought to be punished. And society then takes it out on them. I believe that if, that if, if he were standing here and he, and he had only two or three sentences to say, how ought we to live when our government and society makes no claims to honoring Christ, Paul, Paul would say, perhaps, Jesus said, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. And so that means submit to fire inspections and obtain the proper insurances or licenses for your business and drive the speed limit, right? You know, and, 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 and do those things. Render unto Caesar what is rightfully Caesar's territory, but render only to God what is God's. The way that you behave, the moral standard that you live by, the way that you respond when someone wrongs you, the, the way that, the, way that um, the, the, the things that we say, yes, we will bless this, or no, we, 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 we will not participate in that, ought to be defined by God and not by society. 
Caesar has no claims over our morality. They were right when they said they're acting in this particular way because they say that there is another king, Jesus. It's interesting. I, I, find, I find this tension in the, in the writing on this passage. Matthew Henry says this, There's nothing in the teaching of Christ that tended toward the dethroning of kings. To which I would say, I agree. Christians, above all, ought to be those who, who honor the law. We ought to drive the speed limit. We ought not to say, Jesus is my king and he is my judge, and that means I can drive anywhere I want, you know, and like, I'm going to swing a Yui right here, you know. That's, that's not okay. Christianity does not mean chaos. King Jesus does not liberate us from any human law. My Greek professor, Dr. Larkin, writes this in his commentary. He says, totalitarian rulers, whether Caesar or modern-day overlords, cannot peacefully coexist with King Jesus or his kingdom subjects. Because when some king comes along and says, I will control the way that you think and believe and behave on every matter, we say, no, that is not your place. We have a higher king. But when we do that, when we reject the teaching of our culture, when we say no, we ought to do it with gentleness and respect so that our conscience is clear, so that when people wrong us, they will not be able to look at our behavior and say, see, they had it coming. Or if they do, they'll be lying about it. Jesus predicts that this will be the way that the church will function in the world, the way the kingdom of God will be treated in the world. Mark 13, 13, you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. What is our response to those who don't like what we believe and don't like us because we believe it? Matthew 5, 44, I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Do you see how being in the kingdom of God, being part of it, means that we have a new view of authority and a new view of society? Our world would say, if you don't like the authority structure, tear it down and build something new. That's why, like, Les Miserables, you know, is popular. People love to sing these revolutionary songs. They love all the singing and romance and stuff. But they also like the fact that there's a lot of, like, we hate the government in it and trying to tear it down and build something new. A new view of authority and a new view of society says that our culture needs healing, not by rejecting our, our culture or its structures, but by healing the people who are in it. They need to know what the Word of God says and be called to bring themselves under its authority, under God's authority. And yet, you look at the church, and so often the, the, the church is responding to the society by saying, what do you like? What kind of music do you like? What kind of preaching do you like? What can we tell you that you'll like to hear? What, what are we doing other than setting up churches that are, are mirrors for the idolatry of our culture? I brought my friend to church, right? What's the usual response? Did they like it? Isn't that the right question? Isn't the right question... Wow, you know, how did they react to what they heard? Where, where are they in terms of their connection with the gospel? How are you sharing with them? How are you pressing home the claims of Christ in their life? 
Did they like it? We're trivializing it. Michael Card says that when we remake our faith in our image, our faith becomes nothing but idolatry. Let's not forget that as we look out at our society, that we're looking at people who need Christ. They are not our enemies. This is not a war between two sides, right? The people who are for us and the people who are against us. It's a war between God and the one who wants to destroy all things. The war between darkness and light is is not a war between us who are right and those who are wrong and they are our enemies and our goal is to shame them and defame them and tear them down. Our goal is that they would believe and receive the gospel and be saved. Not that they would be destroyed. John 3.16 God so loved the world that he gave his son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And then comes what I believe is the loneliest verse in the Bible. John 3.17 How would you love to be John 3.17? No one ever holds up you at a football game, ever. It's true, right? You ever seen John? I've never seen it. For God did not send his his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And yet, what does the world hear so often when they listen to to shouting and screaming and opposition, what they hear is the church condemning the world instead of speaking in a way that presses home the claims of Christ that they might be saved. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of of the Son of God. Let me sum up by saying this. I'm going to close, close down. When the world lives like it has no king, we ought to live like Christ is ours. And that means that we press forward on two fronts. That we extend grace and mercy continuously to those who are on the outside. Because let me, let me just say this. A major difference between Jesus and his church so often, this is a, an if the boot fits, wear it. If the boot doesn't fit, then chew the meat, spit out the bones, if I can mix my analogies here. People who weren't like Jesus liked Jesus. Are people who aren't like the church liking the church in our culture? Do you live in such a way that that people who aren't like church people will like the church? And yet doing it without compromising. Are we living in such a way that, that we are explaining and pressing home the claims of Christ and saying, God loves you. Will, you. will you hear and receive and submit to this message and be transformed? Which means that we need to have rock-solid conviction towards those on the outside and yet be engaging and loving towards those on the outside. That's hard. That's hard. But I believe that if, if, 
if, if we are servants of Christ, if we are following him, then we will seek to live that out each and every day. Just imagine for a moment what the world would look like. What, what would our church look like? What would, what would the city of Salisbury look like if we pressed forward into our culture, not on the basis of a, of a culture war, making this a, a, a Republican-Democrat thing, or a we wish we had a different president, or a all the laws are wrong thing. This is, by the way, this is, don't, don't take this as some kind of political smackdown, because that's not what this is. But, but instead, of, instead of focusing on all the issues that are wrong with our culture and making a list of the 28 sins of our culture, if we just said the reason everything is messed up is that the world rejects Christ and God. And we then pressed home the claims of Christ to those who we were speaking to. What if we weren't shy about confessing our own sins as part of the problem, as well as the sins of others. Why is our culture so messed up that G.K. Chesterton apparently responded? He's an author from Britain. Somebody wrote him a letter and said, uh, what's wrong with the world? We'd, we'd like for you to submit an essay. And he replied back, what's wrong with the world? I am. That was his answer. We're messed up, but Christ transforms and saves. Shouldn't that be the message that we proclaim? Shouldn't that be what we build our foundation on? As we see the world reject Christ as king, ought we not to live as though he is and to live in the way that he lived towards those who did not believe in him or trust in him? Let's close in prayer. Father, I thank you for the opportunity. To, to be here today. I thank you for your grace and your mercy toward us. Lord, I, I, I think it is, it, is a, it is a hard thing to balance grace and truth. But I pray that as our, as our culture continues to head in the direction that it's, that it's going, as it continues to, to shed its Christian skin, and to emerge as, as something else, whatever it is, Lord, I pray that you would help us not to panic and not to trivialize the situation or to, or to act like the world should know better, but instead to see this as an opportunity to proclaim the gospel and to live in the way that we're called to as if you are king. Lord, I pray that, that you would enable us to live in a way that's appealing to those who do not know you so that they will, will see the beauty of knowing you, not that they would catch that we think that we are morally superior to them. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Father, I pray if there's anyone here today who does not know you, that they would put their faith and trust in the redeeming work of Jesus Christ. I pray if there's, if there's anyone here today who knows you and who is far from you and who needs to, to submit to your love and, a, and authority as Father and as Lord, I pray that they would do that, Lord. I pray if there's anyone here today, Lord, who, who is under conviction because of something that's been said, Lord, I pray that, that we would sift the truths that come from your word 
from the condemnation of the devil and that we would, in repentance and faith, turn from dead idols to serve a living and true God. May we live in a way that pleases you, Lord, each and every day and brings honor to you as king. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.